we're going to begin a new study on the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, find your way there. Electronic device, paper copy, whatever you have, I always encourage you to bring a copy of the scriptures with you. Have one uh, readily uh, there with you to, to track along. Um, we're going to be spending about 12 weeks uh, in this study. And we're going to walk through the, the letter of 1 Timothy from beginning to end. And as always, as we begin a study like this on a specific book of the Bible, I encourage you to start reading it. Uh, you might be wondering, you know, feel like you should read the Bible, but maybe it's not a habit of yours. And so you're like, where do I start? Well, here's your chance to start. Uh, you just uh, go to 1 Timothy, and, uh, which is in the New Testament, and you'll, uh, you'll find a wonderful source of truth in this letter. So I'd encourage you just to read it uh, in your private time. Uh, read it with your family at the dinner table, uh, different forms. And over this course of 12, 13 weeks, um, it seems reasonable to think you, you could even read it three or four times. So you read it one time, don't just set it down and think you're done. Uh, read it again, and then read it again. And as you saturate your minds with it, um, I think you'll find it invigorating to your faith. And uh, the more you engage personally, the more you will benefit from our time together here on Sundays as well. And uh, in line with that, I want us to read the first 11 verses together out loud today. So if you've got an English Standard Version, you obviously can read it right there from your copy. It'll be on the screens for us, for those of you that may not have a Bible or uh, don't have these, this particular translation. And by the way, if you would like a paper copy of a Bible and don't own one, you can stop right out at the Welcome Center. We've got ones there. We'd be glad to give you one so that you can have one, all right? But let's read these first 11 verses as we uh, jump into this study together. We're going to be talking about a lot of background information and stuff today, which is always good to, to make sure we understand as we launch into a particular portion of Scripture. So let's read uh, beginning in verse 1 of the book of First Timothy. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, Father, this is the reading of your word. 
and I pray that we would take it to heart. I pray, Lord, that as we study this today, um, Lord, that we would um, desire to hear from you, to listen and understand what you have given to us. May it form and shape our thinking, and Lord, that we would be conformed and transformed uh, to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. A pastor friend of mine once said, if you want to make a mess in the church, then just do these three things. Use ministry for yourself, be sloppy with the scriptures, and neglect the gospel. Now, we know the author of this letter, Paul, as we noted in uh, verse 1, he wrote this letter as well as several others in the New Testament that Paul would absolutely agree with that assertion of my friend. In fact, I think we could classify many of the warnings and commands of the Apostle Paul under each of those three headings. Use ministry for yourself, be sloppy with the scriptures, and neglect the gospel. That's a formula for making a mess in the church. Now, as we should with any time we approach the Word of God, we need to understand the backdrop and the background of what... Uh, is the context of what we're studying. So let's, let's think for a moment, and, and today's kind of a, a formative uh, uh, message in this series as we kind of launch things. So there's going to be, I want to give you that, that developed context of where we're at uh, for this letter, because that definitely impacts how we understand what is written. So the author of this letter, right, this is an actual historical letter written from a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. Now, Paul, you may or may not be aware, Paul was persecutor of the early church. He was responsible for the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as well as many others. In Acts chapter 8, Paul continues to ravage those who follow Jesus or belong to the way, as uh, the book of Acts refers to the Christian life. and in Acts chapter 9, as Paul is traveling to a town in, uh, the town of Damascus and um, to threaten and arrest other followers of Jesus, God sovereignly intervened in his life through a great light, and Paul is saved. He's born again. He's brought from death to life. He's redeemed, justified, uh, forgiven, right? All of those things true of us in Christ, that's, that happened to Paul in that moment. And so God humbled him by striking him with blindness for a few days, stopping him cold in his tracks until God instructed a man named Ananias to go and restore his sight. So Paul was actually at this time more often referred to as Saul. Acts chapter 13 verse 9 tells us he went by both names, Saul and Paul. Saul, of course, being his Hebrew name because he was a Jew, and Paul being his Roman name because he was a Roman citizen born in the city of Tarsus. So if you've ever wondered why Saul and Paul, same person, but he goes by, that's Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Roman name. And so having dual names like that was common in those days, and it's understandable that he went by Saul as he voraciously demonstrated his devotion to Judaism by persecuting Christians. And then when called by God to be a minister of the gospel, primarily among the Gentiles or those who are non-Jews, he went by his Roman name, Paul. And again, Acts chapter 13 reveals kind of that transition in his life of his names, the use of his names. Now, if you're picking up on this already, 
Uh, one of the things we know about the Word of God, the way it is written, is that the book of Acts is a historical narrative of much of what happened in those early days of the church. And so when we read a letter like 1 Timothy, we can go to the book of Acts to get some background. And so to be familiar with the book of Acts is, is really important for an understanding of, of the movements and people and all of that of what's happening in the rest of the New Testament. I love Paul's testimony in how God transformed his life. In it, we realize some hearts are so cold toward the gospel that it takes some kind of tragic event or life circumstance to get the person's attention, right? To, to kind of rattle their cage, if you will, to stir their heart toward God. That's what happened with Paul. And in it, we realize, too, that God is sovereign, that in life, we only live within the bounds of his sovereignty. Uh, we have a measure of opportunity of choosing, of free will, we refer to it. But all of that happens within the context of God's sovereignty, and God chose to save Paul. God chose to do so in a dramatic way and to use a situation in life to get his attention and to stir him toward belief in Christ. And so God acts in such a way, and uh, if you ever wonder if God can save someone from the depth of sin and use them for his glory, Paul's your guy, right? Uh, what a tremendous example. So for those of you that have friends or relatives that maybe you've been praying for for a long time that just seem to be so cold toward the gospel, keep praying, right? Amen? And keep praying and see what God does. So Paul's our author. Timothy is our recipient of this letter. He is a pastor in the city of Ephesus. What we know about Timothy from Acts chapter 16 is that he uh, had a father who was Greek and a mother who was Jewish. Uh, his grandmother and mother seem to be the primary spiritual influences in his life. We note that from 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 1 verse 5, in which he says to him, I'm reminding, uh, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you also. Some commentators believe that uh, Paul's uh, father, perhaps, or excuse me, Timothy's father was not even a follower of Christ. We have no other mention of him other than just that he was a Greek. So when Paul became acquainted with Timothy, it seems he was a disciple of Jesus already. Uh, Paul immediately recognized Timothy's spiritual maturity, even though he was young in age, probably 15 to 20 years old, uh, when Paul met him, uh, he was a spiritually mature uh, person. Someone, his grandmother, mother had introduced him to Christ, and he was already growing. At the point of this letter, he was probably 30 to 35 years old um, and uh, had been ministering with Paul for several years after Paul had invited him to travel and minister with him, he refers to Timothy as his spiritual son. Um, some they lead the, that leads them to conclude that Paul was actually the one to to uh, lead Timothy to salvation in Christ. Um, may not necessarily be the case, just meaning their relationship was strong. Paul was a mentor to Timothy, just like Paul had Barnabas who mentored him after he came to Christ. Timothy had Paul who then mentored him and helped him grow as a minister of the gospel. So Timothy was a great help to Paul. He's mentioned in the opening comments of Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and Thessalonians and Philemon. And uh, so he was an extremely instrumental partner in the gospel. And now we find him in the city of Ephesus. Verse 3 tells us 
that Paul urged him uh, to stay in Ephesus when he went to Macedonia. This uh, emphasis of remaining, right? Remain in, in, in Ephesus. Um, perhaps that's just the initial request that as they were in Ephesus together, Paul was leaving to go to Macedonia saying, hey, stay here. Uh, there's some unfinished business. Some think that perhaps the ministry in Ephesus was so difficult and so challenging that Timothy considered leaving Ephesus, and Paul got wind of that as he was traveling to Macedonia, and he was, sent him a message saying, no, remain, stay, persevere, be resilient, you know, um, I know it's tough, but stay, stick it out, and you may be wondering why, if that's the case, why was it so difficult in Ephesus? Well, as part of our building of the, the backdrop here, let's understand a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Uh, it was a Roman province in Asia Minor. It had an estimated population of about 250,000, which made it the third largest city in the Roman Empire. As a major port city, the makeup was ethnically diverse, yet firmly Roman in allegiance. Uh, commerce and trade and the arts and tourism, those were all the primary economic engines of life. As archaeologists have uncovered parts of ancient Ephesus, they have uncovered public squares and stadiums and gymnasiums and theaters. One theater built into the side of the hill, they estimate, could accommodate 24,000 people. The broad diversity and the public life of Ephesus made, meant that, that the philosophies of life, the, the philosophies of death and religion abounded. You wanted to find something, most likely you could find it in Ephesus. It was that kind of city. It was also home to the cult of the goddess Artemis. Not home to the cults. I know it's football season. Some of you might be having football in the brain, right? But the cult, C-U-L-T, right? The cult of the goddess Artemis, as the Greeks referred to her, or Diana, as the Romans referred to her. The temple of Artemis, known as the Artemisian, is counted as one of the seven natural wonders of the world. It begun in mid-16th century and took more than a century to complete. And by the time it was finished, it was the largest structure of its kind in all of Rome and Greece and Athens combined. It was uh, 425 feet Long, which again, it's football season, so for those of you that think in terms of football fields, it was almost a, a length and a half of a football field, 141 yards, 220 feet wide, meaning also about a width and a half of a football field. So this was a, a massive structure, and, and in size, it was roughly four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And not only was it uh, a massive structure in regards to its square footage, but also it, it, it was adorned with 127 massive columns that extended to the 60-foot height of the structure. So this was, this was a big deal. And more imposing than its size and beauty was the cultural influence of this religion. Although nearly 50 deities or idols have been identified as part of Ephesian culture, Artemis was the goddess of gods. The people worshipped her. She was seen as an extremely powerful deity, even one whose carved image fell directly from heaven. And so as the goddess of fertility, the goddess of magic and of astrology, the influence of this pagan worship 
reach deep into the cultural currents of Ephesus. Just as we would say it's impossible to imagine Las Vegas without gambling, so we understand the culture of Ephesus was immersed in the worship of Diana. The influence of magic opened the door to demonic activity. Sexual immorality was rampant and perversion was normalized. So a city in which this full expression, if you will, of sinful hearts was on display. Wickedness abounded. That's Ephesus. Um, And so amidst the backdrop of such a context, we can imagine the difficulty of sharing a brand new message. And in fact, one which completely was completely contrary to the predominant way of life. I mean, can you imagine going into a city like that and trying to share the gospel? Um, what a challenge. This letter of 1 Timothy was written around AD 62 to 64, a few years after when we believe Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians. So one of the things we we can couple together here is realizing Timothy's in Ephesus. If that rings a bell, there's a letter that we have in the Bible called Ephesians, right? Which is another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And he, he wrote that letter prior to writing this letter to Timothy. In fact, he wrote that letter to the Ephesians while under house arrest in Rome near the time of AD 60. And after his release from that house arrest, he... Uh, Apparently found Timothy, and together they made a stop in Ephesus to encourage the believers there. So in Acts chapter 19, which we have a map for you here, just to, for those of you that like visual stuff, uh, this map is the, uh, the portion of, of Paul's journeys we refer to as his second, and this is actually the first and second missionary journey, but the circle is Ephesus, the line there with the arrow is uh, meaning that, that they journeyed to Ephesus on the return portion of, of Paul's second missionary journey when he was getting back to Jerusalem. And so we read that Paul had previously spent time there, um, two years in fact, earlier, about 10 years prior to uh, this letter. And so in AD 52-54 is when he was in Ephesus and, and uh, longer than any other region that he spent time in establishing the church. And uh, Timothy was with him for part of that time. It, quite a story. Acts, Acts chapter 19, I would encourage you to read it thoroughly uh, on your own time. Uh, but this is part of the way Paul described his time in Ephesus. Again, understanding as we just described kind of the nature of the city 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul references it. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Right? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so uh, Paul references his time there. It's like, man, he was like wrestling beasts, uh, those who challenged him. So in Acts 19, let me just summarize a bit of that experience in Ephesus. Again, this is all backdrop information of, of why his letter to 1 Timothy was so significant. First of all, we realize in Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, that he found those who all they had been exposed to was the teaching of John the Baptist, the teaching of repentance that John gave. We read of that, and particularly in, 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 the gospel of, uh, in the Gospels, the four Gospels, we can read of that in, in various ways. But, but he's saying, I, I, I introduced them to Jesus, to the way, the way of Christ, and they were saved and baptized and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul taught boldly in the synagogue for three months, and when some became angry and stubborn, he withdrew and taught in what was referred to as the Hall of Tyrannus. 
Ephesus is where God enabled Paul in this amazing way to heal many of sickness and disease, even through his aprons and his handkerchiefs. There were Jewish exorcists who witnessed this power that God had given to Paul to heal. And so they themselves attempted to invoke the name of Jesus, uh, whom Paul proclaims, it says, to dispel an evil spirit. And uh, the evil spirit, when, when these men confronted him, of course, they were just doing this for their They wanted the same power. It was a selfish means. They wanted to do what Paul did. And so they used this name, Jesus, right, to, to do this. And, and the evil spirit, Acts 19 records, looked at the men and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you, right? And in the power of that demonic force, this man attacked uh, those men, beat them, stripped them, and they ran away, according to Acts 19.20, and, uh, uh, or in Acts chapter 19, verse 20 of Acts 19, and, and, and through this power, what we read is, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So when, when Paul was there in Ephesus, I mean, God was doing an amazing work. The people witnessed some incredible things. People were turning their hearts to Christ, so much so that it caught the attention of Demetrius, who is a silversmith in the city as Acts 19 tells us, and so he stirs up this riot because he made images of Artemis and, and others that, that was kind of the primary way of his income, and he was fearful that be, if, if this kept going the way that it was, he was going to be put out of business. So he stirs up the anger of the people, says some of them don't even know why they were in the mob, but they were there, and his fear was this, that Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That was his fear, that this goddess Artemis would, would be deposed uh, of her magnificence. Now, let me just say, first of all, that if you worship of God whom you fear can be deposed of their magnificence, uh, you should probably consider a different god, right? Um, but nonetheless... Paul prevailed, and uh, two years of God's powerful work in Ephesus. And so later, Paul was released from his house arrest in Rome. They were excited to get back to Ephesus to check on the brothers and sisters there, and they found things in confusion. So this map as well, just uh, that journey, the third journey of Paul, where he was um, around, they, he and Timothy stopped in Ephesus, and as he went on to Macedonia... Uh, he leaves Timothy there to take care of things. Um, some things needed to be done, things to teach, correct, things to put in order. And so Paul wrote this urgent letter to Timothy while they were apart to give clear instructions and encouragement to him. And so for us, this letter really becomes a historical document, if you will. But more than that, far more than that, it is the inspired word of God with clear instruction and encouragement for the church even today. So notice in the greeting that Paul asserts his apostleship. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Note the repetition of Christ Jesus. He's distinguishing himself, first of all, by being commanded of God to carry this message, and second of all, it's the message of Christ Jesus. It's not just any message. It's the gospel of Christ Jesus. Make no mistake about it. And so in that day, when people may have been tempted to ask the question, why should we listen to you, Paul? He answered that by saying, because I've been commanded by God with this message. 
and it is the message of Christ Jesus, the one and only. So today, we might be tempted to ask the question, and maybe you've grappled with this question, why should we listen to the Bible? Why should we listen to this message? Why should we take much, you know, put much stock in it? Well, over and over, history and archaeology, the literary structure, the, the accuracy of the prophets, the seamless storyline written by 40 authors over 1,400 years, the substantiation of early church fathers, the astounding number of ancient manuscripts, and so on. All of these things attest to the collections of the writings that we hold, that they are the Word of God. So the letter we call 1 Timothy is one of the three letters uh, we call the pastoral epistles. Two of those are written to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. The other was written to a pastor named Titus. In the middle of uh, the year 2019, we studied Titus. We titled that series, The Character of a Healthy Church. That was a good checkup on some things for us as a church. And now it's time for us to visit the doctor's office once again, if you will, to examine God's purpose and design for the church and make sure we get a good report. Although this time, instead of the analogy of health, we're going to think of 1 Timothy as a manual, as a manual for local churches. You know what a manual is, right? That's sometimes little, sometimes big book that comes with whatever you buy, the one that hopefully you keep, but you probably throw it in a drawer or a cabinet somewhere, the one that you uh, read only when you have to, right? When something goes wrong, you're trying to figure out how, you know, some, you know, thing that this uh, option this thing has that you purchased. And in other words, most of us at least try to uh, figure it out on our own first, and only turn to the manual when we can't. Let's not treat the Word of God that way. Let's be proactive in studying and learning, remembering and applying the Word of God, remembering that it is God who created us. In fact, it is in His image that we are made, that He has the authority to determine right and wrong, to whom He is the one to whom we will give an account for our life. Let's do well to study this book of all books, right? The only inspired and errant writing of old, that through which all of life is to be measured and formed and filtered. And in doing so, we can avoid the pitfalls of false teaching. We can avoid the pitfalls of our sinful desires and attacks of our enemy. In other words, let's not wait until something breaks or goes wrong as a church and then go to the manual wondering what went wrong. Let's study it well. Let's seek to be sure that we as a local church are aligned with God's message here well and in that experience the blessing of God. As Paul labored over this letter to Timothy, his instructions and encouragement were not meant for Timothy alone, but also for the church. We could say that this letter was private, but it was a public message that meant to be shared with everyone. Paul gives to us a key for his writing, of why he's writing this to Timothy. We go to chapter 3 just for a moment in verses 14 and 15, which Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know, here it is, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church intended to be the pillar and the buttress or the prop or the brace of truth. That we as the church, right, God's people, the bride of Christ, are the ones 
responsible for stewarding the truth of God that he has given to us. So therefore, it's urgent. What Paul writes at the beginning of the letter is urgent. So chapter three verses, or excuse me, chapter one, verses three and four, Paul says, "So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths." And we can understand with our backdrop information of Ephesus, a city so influenced by magic, by astrology, we can understand the myths that would have been certainly propagated and 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 pronounced in the city followed by many, and the endless genealogies. There seems to have been a, a large Jewish population in the city of well as well, so perhaps there were some of the false teachers were, were reverting back to uh, the, the Jewish heritage as, hey, your, your real significance is found as in your, you're a descendant of Abraham, right? We're the, we're the, the people of Abraham, and that's what makes us not, not Christ. And so they were getting confused. Some thought they had a better way. Some thought they were smarter. And so philosophy in abundance, new ideas throughout the city captured attention. And so Paul charged Timothy to put these teachings to an end within the church. So as I stated earlier, if you want to make a mess in the church, use the ministry for yourself. I think Safe to conclude, those who were propagating such different doctrine and myths and so forth, they were doing so to try and somehow set themselves apart or somehow they say, I have the true message. And so they were using a ministry for themselves, for self-promotion, for glory of self, for their own ideas and the latest philosophy. Paul always pointed to Christ. Paul never made his ministry about himself. He pointed to Christ. And we need to as well. And why is that the case? Well, because these things, these different doctrines, these myths and genealogies, they promote speculations, Paul goes on to say, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. They promote speculations, guesses, chasing the latest, hearsay, things not grounded in truth, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Instead of stewarding what God had given, they were chasing after other beliefs. May we be stewards. And in being a steward of the word of God, may we avoid making a mess in the church by being sloppy with the scriptures, right? We need to hold it highly. We need to take the word of God for what it is, the inspired and errant authoritative word. Friend, there ought to be no other source in your life that carries greater weight in understanding your life and this world around you than the Word of God. It ought to be primary in your life, first and foremost, that through which everything else flows. And so Paul, of course, we sense the urgency in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love, the agape love, self-sacrificing kind of love. The aim of our charge is love, and love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Those three captions really are telling. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart in the sense that, that they, were, they were seeking to follow Christ in purity. A good conscience that they could understand like the right and wrong and they were pursuing 
what was right in the eyes of God and sincere faith, that there was some sincerity about it. This wasn't some show they were putting on. It wasn't something for their own glory. It was the sincerity of their faith. And that's what produces a love that flows, an agape kind of love. And so the charge is for the purpose of love as it stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Now, verses 6 through 11, again, Paul speaks of there are certain persons here. Um, He doesn't name them. Timothy would have known who he was talking about. But these certain persons, Paul says, by swerving from these, meaning a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, by swerving from those things, they have wandered away into vain, meaning pointless or fruitless discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here we see this heart of kind of self-promotion, right? They don't even know what they're talking about, but they just want to be the ones to, 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 to be teaching it. And now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers and sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, right? So just what can we see? What's Paul getting? He lists some specifics here, but he, he kind of finishes it by saying whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, these certain people that Paul is referencing, they were swerving. They were swerving. The word used here is not the uh, uh, kind of necessary swerving like you swerve to miss a deer when they, you do that carefully, of course, right? But you, you swerve to miss a deer when they come out of the trees or out of the corn, right? That, that's not the kind of swerving. This swerving is an intentional kind of swerving. It's like the kind of swerving you do when you're traveling down the highway and you swerve off the highway onto the exit that you intended to take. That's the swerving. It's an intentional mind. It's an intentional pursuit. And Paul says certain people have a swerving from these, right? And, and in a sense, they are intentionally chasing after all else within Ephesus that was void of, of God's word, the, the philosophies and the uh, myths and so on. It was intentional. And friend, I would just ask you the question. Are you swerving? Are you swerving in life? As you think about and ponder your day-to-day life, what is it that fills your mind? What is it that you find as your source of guiding you, directing you? Do you chase after the many things that are available to us that, that, that cause us to leave behind the Word of God? News, politics, right? Chasing after the, the, the latest self-help things that, that just are out there that, that man, if, if only, if only, if only, if I could understand, if only this, and, and what about this over here? Is that where you find your mind, or do you find your mind and heart centering yourself upon the Word of God? Every day, every day, centering your mind before you head out into your work or before you head out to school, before you engage with your family? Is it the Word of God that you're setting your mind upon? 
or are you swerving? Are you swerving away from the things of God and letting the plethora of information and philosophies of this world dominate you? And maybe even you're teaching those to others. Parents in the room, we talked about parenting last week. What's your highest priority with your children? Where does the Word of God fit into what you teach them? How does it form and shape? How does, how does the Word of God influence and shape how you talk about the things of life, how you process the things of life? Don't swerve. Paul says we know the law is good, and meaning that the law points us to the holiness and righteousness of God. It identifies our inability to live righteously as God demands. We fall far short, the scripture says, far short of the glory of God. That's what the law was good for. That's why God established the law, because it revealed his holiness and our, our sinfulness. He says some have, have fallen prey to that. They, even though the law is good, they treat it in such a way that is not good. They hold it in high esteem that it's about fulfilling the law instead of following Christ. So the law was written to reveal, and he mentions certain things here as specific examples, but then he says at the end, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Friend, today within the church, and, and quite honestly, if we look at Ephesus and we look at you know, what they were grappling with, we realize there's nothing new under the sun. Right? The world in which we live, we, we have these same temptations, we have the same heart desires. And so we must be careful. Our false teachings today, even within the church, you know, a health and wealth, a gospel that would proclaim that God, you know, will absolutely heal you. And if you give to God, he will give to you and you will have this wealth that is abounding we have a relative, uh, relativistic moralism taught within the church, meaning that, hey, this, this stuff of, you know, that God gives to us, it's, it's, it's relative. It's like whatever, whatever makes you happy, whatever is right for you, those teachings are found, unfortunately, within the church today. We have denial of absolute truth. We have a teaching that all roads lead to heaven. In organizations that, that carry the name church, these things are taught. We must be careful, for we too can be prone to swerve. We must guard the word of God well. Sound doctrine produces mature, healthy Christians. Sound doctrine, it's important for us to have a statement of faith, and not just have it, but to review it and to know it. It's important for us to study the word of God, to develop our lives spiritually in alignment with it. Paul ends in verse 11 by speaking to that. He says, this is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We cannot take lightly the message of God's word. You, friend, are an ambassador of Christ. You are a steward of the word of God. So to make a mess of the church, we would neglect the gospel. We can't do that. 
In fact, I would encourage you every day as a follower of Christ to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And you may be wondering what I mean by that. Let me just finish. We're going to close with this today. We're not singing at the end today. But let me just explain to you what I mean by preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Is having a time intentionally every morning when you wake up to review these things in your mind. The gospel. To acknowledge, first of all, the pervasive presence of sin in the world. Everything has been affected by sin. In one regard, we could say there's an answer to the question, why? All brokenness, heartache, confusion, disappointment, disillusionment, and so on is is rooted in the effect of sin. So first of all, we just acknowledge that. It's the world in which we live. Second of all, we acknowledge the pervasive presence of sin in your own life. Acknowledge that. I am a sinner, and I stand in deep need of a Savior. And today I'm going to battle that sin. Right? Today I'm going to be confronted with temptation. I'm going to be challenged to, to think in a worldly way instead of a godly way. James tells us, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, that the primary battle is within our own desires, that we are, when we are tempted, we are lured and enticed by our own desire. Sometimes I think we give Satan far too much credit for the things we struggle with. And I think we tend to because by nature, as we look back to Adam and Eve, even in the Garden of Eden, what do we most naturally like to do, we like to blame shift, right? So even if it's on Satan, we can look and say, well, you know, Satan, and and Satan certainly is active. Please don't hear me denying that. But the Bible seems to indicate that the struggle of our temptation is our own desires that dwell within. And so we have to acknowledge that and, and humbly confess, I'm a sinner, and today I'm going to battle that sin. And thankfully, if you have come to know Christ as your Savior, to preach the gospel to yourself, then you confess your need for Jesus and that he is the only way, right? You, you acknowledge, man, I am so thankful for Jesus. I will often pray in the morning, Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died and gave himself for me, and you raised him from the dead so that I can have life, Right? As we preach the gospel to ourselves, we embrace the glory and beauty of our salvation then. All that is true of you in Christ, and in the midst of a broken world, you have been made whole, and you await the glorious fulfillment of the promises of God. So relish in that. Remember all that is true of you in Christ. And lastly, in light of all this, saturate your mind with the truth that this world is not the end. Right? This world is not all that there is. So many times we get caught in this mindset of futility that this world is... All, no, there's eternity, friend. Don't be nearsighted. Set your mind on the eternal view of life. That this suffering, this battle against your flesh and sin, it will not continue forever. And our life on this earth is but a brief time, a mist, the Bible says. Your life is a tiny droplet of water that's here and gone. And that's something to find encouragement in. Not discouragement, 
not woe is me, but just to realize this life is not all that there is. There's eternity. And there's a hope and there's a future for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so to preach the gospel to yourself every day, I think, is one of the most helpful disciplines that keeps us focused and keeps us from neglecting the gospel. Let me finish with this. I received a text from someone just a couple of days ago who I had opportunity to spend time with previously and uh, in my talk with them, encouraged them to begin reading 1 Timothy uh, in anticipation of this today. And I received this text from him a couple of days ago as he was uh, had begun reading it, and I found it encouraging to me, and I thought you might find it encouraging as well. He says this, 1 Timothy is like a grand finale at a fireworks show. Chapters 1 through 5 is all good to unpack, and then bang, chapter 6 comes in at the end and hits you. Chapter 6, 11 and 12, fighting the good fight. Chapter 6, verse 12, take hold of eternal life. A great line for baptism, he says. And then chapter 6, 13 through 16, so much in this. Pilate made the good confession to keep from reproach until appearing before Jesus. And chapter 6, verses 17 through 21, so much in it, exclamation point. He goes on to say, I'm sitting here overwhelmed with emotions from reading this and trying to take it all in and break it down and comprehend it. Chills, literally, on my body and crying. Ha ha. (laughs) And I read that, and my heart was full of joy. Because that's the living and active Word of God at work. Right? That's the intended purpose of God's Word. To shape us to form us. Friend, read it. Study it. Embrace it. Don't neglect it. Don't swerve from it. Don't let the things of this world distract you to the point that when you go home, you just set it on a shelf and hopefully remember to bring it with you next Sunday. Let's be people of the word. Let's be proactive in being people of the word and not waiting till something breaks and then kind of wondering what in the world happened. Now, let's be a local church. Let's be a church who centers ourselves upon the word of God and aligns ourselves well with it. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you and we will be dismissed. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for such a grounding that we have in this life that is full of turmoil. When the waves of life come and toss and turn, we are thankful that we have your word to be grounded upon. Help us as a church body to not be swayed by philosophies and myths and genealogies and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Guide us by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.